the epistle reading for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost is from Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel in St. Matthew, the 18th chapter. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace went to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Who is the greatest? It's a question we still ask today. We have debates over who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time in various things, whether it's in various athletic sports, whether it's in artists or a band or presidents, whatever it may be. We want to know who's the greatest of all time. Now, I want you to picture yourself for a moment. What would you consider would make you the greatest? What things in your mind can you think of right now that you would step back at your life and say, if I had this right now, I would be the greatest? But whatever it is you want to be great at, what would it take? So we're going to see that Jesus doesn't tell us that desiring to be the greatest is wrong. He just tells us that how we do it is much different than the way the world considers this question. In fact, the question comes from the disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples are approaching this from a very worldly thinking. They figure there's only so much greatness to go around, only so much glory to go around. So you have to seek it, you have to gain it, and then you better hold on to it, lest lose it. And perhaps it's because right before this, the end of chapter 17, Jesus tells them they're sons of the king and a question about paying taxes. And maybe they're thinking, we're sons of the king. We're pretty great. But who's the greatest among us? And Jesus redefines and transforms the entire discussion. He takes a small child, and he places the small child right in the midst of them and says, that's greatness. That is the greatest. Now, I have seven kids. I have a two-year-old, and she's pretty stinking cute. But if I put her in front of you and said, this is greatness, aspire to be this, you would say, what has she done? She hasn't done anything. She's two. If I put her out in the middle of you, she'd probably start crying or run away or make some weird noise. But Jesus says, that is true greatness. And unless you become that, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. In the ancient society, children were really quite despised. I mean, our society is not much better. Look at what we do to children in the womb. Look at what we do to children throughout the course of their lives, even in our own country. But in Jesus' day, they're especially despised. They weren't thought to have really any value at all. And in fact, that's what Jesus is kind of pointing out, that this child he placed in their midst 
is weak and dependent. This child is vulnerable and needy. And Jesus says, that, that is greatness. That is true greatness. You see, Jesus says then we need to humble ourselves. We need to have true biblical humility, which is seeing ourselves correctly in light of God's holy law, in light of his holy gospel. We have to see ourselves rightly, both under his law as sinners, and then see our need for his precious gospel, and see ourselves rightly, that we cannot save ourselves, but it's all a gift of grace. And then Jesus will go on to show, because of that, we see ourselves as servants of all. Jesus says, that is greatness. What does Jesus do elsewhere when children are brought to him? He receives them. He puts his hand on them and he blesses them. Jesus does this to bring down their pride and our pride. Jesus does this to tell us that we need to check out of this competitive game of honor and glory seeking. That seeking to be great in the eyes of the world means absolutely 100% nothing. It's worthless. Paul would later say in Philippians, it's garbage. Doesn't amount to anything. Jesus will go on to say, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now we're seeing in a moment he changes the wording some, but let's just think of an actual child for a moment. Jesus says our spiritual condition can be seen in whether or not we treat children well. So do you? Do, do you receive children, real, live, breathing children? Do you receive them well? Do you receive them to bless them? Or do you chase them away as an annoyance? Something you can't be bothered with because they're beneath you? Or do you receive them for Jesus' sake, in his name? There can be a cruelty towards children, but there can also be a cold indifference. Jesus doesn't say this only applies if you still have little kids. Jesus doesn't say it only applies if you're at a certain stage of life. Jesus says that we are all to be receiving and blessing children because they show us and teach us how to receive the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Whoever causes one of these little ones, notice the change in language here, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. When we humble ourselves and become as little children, we become little ones. We become those who are weak and dependent, vulnerable and needy, those who depend on Jesus and him alone for our salvation. That's what he's trying to drive home to us. That, indeed, as often people mock us and ridicule us, oh, you Christians are so weak and pathetic, and we can say, absolutely, our strength is in Christ. Thanks be to God. But notice, too, there's something else going on here. Jesus says we'll be judged by how we treat these little ones. Perhaps we can put it this way. Jesus says we'll be judged by how we treat insignificant members of his church, that is insignificant in our eyes. 
Jesus says that if we do this, if we treat them poorly, if we cause them to sin, more on that word in a moment, that it'd be better to have a large millstone tied around our neck and cast into the depth of the sea. It's the same punishment given to the whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation. It's a startling and terrifying thought. Jesus says he cares about these little ones so much that they have guardian angels watching over and protecting them. There is a danger, even in the church, that we treat each other like we would out in the world. That is, we, we come to the church, and, and in church this large, this is, can very easily happen, and even in the tiniest church this happens, we can have our own little cliques, our own little groups, and we exclude others, because perhaps they're not quite like us in various ways. Perhaps we find them annoying. Perhaps we just don't like them very much. And yet Jesus says the church is to be different, that we are to love and care for them. Jesus gives us this warning because he wants to excite vigilance in us, that we might be on guard, that we might be on the lookout for how we are treating the little ones in our midst. He wants us to be inclusive of others, to be loving of others, to look out for one another. And he goes into great detail about what this looks like in the following verses. But first, we need to step back and ask ourselves, am I doing that? Am I loving the little ones? Those who are on the outskirts of the congregation, those who are struggling, those who are hurting, those who are often left out. Jesus then goes into great detail, and it's this part that's kind of weird to us, right? He says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter into heaven without a hand, without a foot, without an eye, than to be thrown into the hell of fire. What in the world is he talking about? Well, a word that keeps coming up causes you to sin, causes you to sin, temptations to sin, causes one who believes in me to sin. In Greek is the word scandalizo, which is great because we have a great English word through Latin, scandalize. Think of someone, when we hear the word scandal, we know something bad's happened and we hear all this horrible news about what's taken place. To scandalize someone in the Bible is to cause them to stumble, to cause them to fall into sin, to set a trap or a snare for them. Jesus is saying that if we set up obstacles for someone to come to the faith, or we set up obstacles that cause them to fall away from the faith, that we have scandalized them. We have set a scandal in their way. And Jesus says we ought never to do this. So how do we avoid this? How do we keep from causing offense that would cause someone to abandon the faith or not come to the faith at all? Part of it is what Jesus already said. We have to humble ourselves. We have to give up our own freedoms, our rights, our privileges to do what's best for the other person, for those around us. To give up the games of power and glory and instead humble ourselves and love and serve them. Exactly what Jesus did for us. 
He left the very glories and riches of heaven and humbled himself, taking on the very form of a servant, the form of a slave, that he might die for us. Think even about Paul. As he goes around sharing the gospel, sometimes he's arrested by the Romans, and sometimes he uses his rights and privileges to be released. Other times he doesn't. Why? Because he cared about one thing. He cared about people being saved through the power of the gospel. That was it. That's what he cared about. Others being saved. That's what Jesus cared about. And so Jesus is telling us to watch out that we don't cause others to stumble and fall, that we don't scandalize them. And one of the ways we do that is by dealing with our own sin severely. Not literally chopping off our hand or plucking out our eye, but taking our sin seriously by repenting of it, by running from it, by dealing with it right away, by being quick to avoid offense, to avoid those things that could possibly lead someone astray. Remember, Paul even says he would give up eating meat if eating that meat would cause someone to abandon the faith. There's a whole lot of context behind that, but the point is that Paul was willing to do whatever it took to make sure he didn't cause someone to stumble or fall. He did not want to scandalize them. And then flowing out of that, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So then Jesus tells a parable about the hundred sheep. Ninety-nine are safe and secure, one is lost. Now, elsewhere, he uses that parable in a very different manner. Here, he has a purpose for it. Here, he wants to excite our zeal to go seeking after those little ones who have strayed, who have gotten lost. Jesus is teaching us that he doesn't want his church, the local church body here, to let a single sheep get away without our utmost effort. I warned him I was going to do this, but he's not here tonight, so I can say more than um, I was going to because he's not sitting over there. But did you know, some of you know, maybe not all of you know, that Pastor Walter on most Sunday afternoons is out going after the sheep who are lost. He's going to their doors. He's leaving bulletins. He's trying to make a connection for those who haven't been in church in a while. I estimated that he's done that over a thousand times thousand times and usually on most visits i've been with him on there's at least four to five places he's gone which means he's gone to four thousand to five thousand probably more places on those sunday afternoon visits doing this very thing trying to make sure the little ones don't fall through the cracks to make sure the sheep know that the shepherd cares for the son of man came to save the lost but it's not just for pastor walter or for me to do it's for us as a congregation to when we see people who haven't been in church in a while and we think about man i haven't seen so and so that we reach out to them we say i love you i miss you where have you been how can i help jesus wants to see others with his eyes he wants us to hear them with his ears he wants us to serve them with our hands and feet because he wants more than anything for the lost to be saved sad it's as if he finds it because not all the lost sheep come back 
but that doesn't mean we give up. Everything in this section is all about how we humble ourselves, we cling to Christ, we see ourselves as little ones, and that includes then turning and loving and serving the little ones in our midst. So Jesus ends the section we're going to look at today with this verse. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Your heavenly Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, they desire one thing, and that is your everlasting salvation. That is their goal. That is their desire. So how does Jesus save you? He seeks you out. He comes to you through his very word and sacrament. He chases after you. He grabs hold of you, and he brings you home. Jesus tells us all of this, even with these severe warnings, not because he wants you to be thrown into the depths of the sea with a giant millstone, but because he wants you to be saved. He wants you to humble yourself to become a child, to become a little one who is weak and dependent and vulnerable and looks only to him for your salvation. Because you see yourself rightly in light of both his holy law and his holy gospel. And then as we do that together, as we humble ourselves and cling to Christ and seek to love one another, we reflect the reality he paints for us here, this beautiful picture of loving and serving and going after each other and upholding each other, even though dimly we reflect it. So who is the greatest? The greatest is the child, the little one, the one who humbles themselves and sees that all they have, all they can claim, all they can boast in is Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on their behalf. That's all we have. That's it. And that shapes all that we do. Because Jesus says the one who clings to him the reason they're great is because he raises them up. He exalts them. And Ephesians says even right now, because we're in him, we're seated at the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what he has for his humble ones, for his little ones, for his children. Amen. The peace of God passes all understanding, guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.